in our spiritual and emotional life, sometimes it seems almost easy to impulsively walk out on the water. history repeats itself. We had that, we had a roof like this in the, the church in the city I served for many years. And uh, one time, one Sunday morning, we were singing How Great Thou Art. And we, I mean, every instrument, including the organ, was going. And the people were raising their voices. And you could still hear the rain on the roof. Uh, thank you, Jesus. Uh, my point is it takes a whole lot more faith to walk day by day on dry land. Thank you, Holly, for the students' choir. Anytime. <clears throat> six voices almost sound like 60 when you put it all together. It's very good. appreciate that. I want to, <clears throat> I'm sure Chris, Pastor Chris joins me in thanking you for this past month, the Pastor Appreciation Month. I have uh, fought against this for years. I think there's a lot of people, there's staff, there's Sunday school teachers, there's volunteers at all levels in our church, small group leaders, and you name our outreaches in the community. And <coughs> but I have appreciated the appreciation. Thank you. The cards, the letters, the notes on those cards, and the occasional bit of food, thank you very much. <coughs> but I can't pass up the fact that um, after watching Pastor Chris blow up that balloon, there's no question about who on the pastoral staff has most hot air, does it? <laughs> I love you still. So stay still, that's fine. <laughs> if you are visiting with us this morning, we are in an eight-week series of reading directly through the New Testament. And we meet every week in our small groups or classes and discuss um, what we've read. And if you're visiting with us, I'm just telling you that, that you're, you're catching us in the middle of a series. And um, last week we had a discussion here, or I made the discussion about Matthew because we read that the week before. And this morning we are down to uh, our reading this past week of Hebrews, James, and Mark. Most of you remember that the book of Hebrews, like the Gospel of Matthew, is addressing a Jewish audience, basically. The book of James also was addressing a Jewish audience, Jewish Christian audience, actually, of the dispersed people who were uh, present on the day of Pentecost and were converted, went back to their homes, and all the home churches that were started throughout, especially uh, Asia Minor and the upper part of Israel. And these letters go out, circulated to uh, prompt people in their faith. The book of Hebrews has basically two thrusts. And we read about that this week, that Jesus Christ is superior to everything that happened preceding in the Old Covenant. He is the summation of the law. He embodies the sacrificial system. And he takes the place of all the priests and rabbis and everybody that's involved in administering the sacrificial system. Jesus embodies the whole shebang. He's it. It's all summarized in him. <clears throat> all right? And uh, then he also talks about faith. 
And it's interesting in our reading because you get this litany of faith in the 11th chapter of Hebrews about all these people who walk by faith. And then you turn, next reading was the book of James, and James makes faith super practical. Makes it get down and walk around. And uh, he adds, not adds, but he explains how faith works. That is, without faith, it's impossible to please God, the writer of Hebrews says. But James says, without works, your faith amounts to nothing. Faith without works is dead. Right. Paul said over in Galatians that faith employs love. Literally, in the literal translation of the Greek, faith employs love to do its work. And there you see the hands-on touching of what faith does as we reach out to one another in help. <coughs> James is also very uh, proverbial in the sense of it kind of reflects Old Testament literature, wisdom literature and so forth. There's a lot of little pithy things that kind of poke us in the side when we read it. And then we finished off with reading the Gospel of Mark. Now the Gospel of Mark is the life of Jesus in the fast lane. And normally you drive the fast lane <clears throat> down over there where some of you are from even today. Uh, you need a passenger in the car if you're going to use the fast lane, right? So what Mark does is he puts us in the car with him as a, as a passenger. It allows him to go in the fast lane. F over 40 times he says immediately, immediately, immediately. And Jesus immediately did this. And after he'd done that, he immediately did this. And then he immediately went somewhere else. And it's really kind of like the gospel on steroids. It just, it just goes. But it's a great summary of the life of Christ in brevity. Now what I want to do this morning, how do you tie Hebrews, James, and Mark all together? I could have picked faith. That's a common discussion in all three of these books. But I've chosen rather to go on, uh, those of you who are visiting, as we read through this New Testament, we have, when we meet, there's five questions we discuss together. Same five questions every week. The third one of those questions is, you can move it forward, yeah. Was there anything that bothered you in what you read? And many of you have found things that <clears throat> at least were inexplicable to you. Whether they bothered you or not, I, <clears throat> I do not know. But I've tried to expand that this morning and just take a some, look at some vignettes in the three books and ask myself the question that I ask when I read the scriptures anytime all, over my lifetime is what does this look like? Jesus said this or the apostles said that. Now, if I walk in that, what's that look like? And how does it work? So that's my tack, and I want to just um, ask you to look with me, and I'm sorry again about my voice. It is what it is, and um, please hear my words through the growling gruffness. The first issue that I want to take a look at of how does it work and what does it look like is what we find in our readings, all three books, if you put them together, over 24 times plus, there's references to trials or to sufferings. You need the next slide there, please. And you summarize from the three books this, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of various kinds. 
The word consider, it literally means in the original text, to get out in front of a situation. And what, in this case, James is saying, can get out in front of your present trial and struggle with joy. The book of Hebrews put it this way, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Can you see that? The suffering, the passion of Christ through his ministry and then the intensity of that in the last week and the last day before he went to the cross. He had something hanging out here in front of him. It's not a, <clears throat> to use a carrot before the horse, that's kind of cheaping in it. But I'm saying there was something out was set. There's a choice to set before us that the presence of God <clears throat> is out there in front of us. And Jesus also said in the Mark, the Son of God must suffer many things and be rejected. And as he was saying that, he was already holding something out in front of him. Joy. The joy that we would be here 2,000 years later and following and worshiping the living God because of what he would do in his cross and resurrection. I've asked myself <clears throat> when I first started reading some years ago the book of James and he says consider it all joy when you have these trials and persecutions and I'm saying wait a minute <laughs> how does that work I know I read and you read in the book of Acts about how <clears throat> Paul and Silas are ministering in the city of Philippi and they get arrested, they get beaten, they get thrown into inner stocks, right? And what are they doing there at midnight? They're worshiping. It says they're praying and singing. And I don't think they were doing, oh, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. <laughs> So I began to get a little hint of what this looks like. But I really saw the picture, I was going to say at the end of the last century, but that makes me as old as Abraham, and I'm not going to say it that way. During the five years that I had the privilege of going every springtime into the Ukraine <clears throat> and teaching in a Bible college in Kiev, this was after Perestroika was working and the wall was down in Berlin and all that. <clears throat> And the second year I was there, and I was invited to go with some of the students. Uh, they would take the teachers that would come from America, and they'd assign them to go out to different churches to, to minister, to preach. And so uh, my assignment was to go out to Koroston, about two hours west of Kiev. <clears throat> and on our way out, um, we got stopped twice for being checked, whether we had our papers in order. We got out to Koroston. And the next morning, I was to preach in two places. One was a little village outside of Corston, a little church of about 30 babushkas. Uh, we saw them as we drove by. They walked three, four, five miles with, a, you know, their little babushka head coverings and came to worship in this old little Baptist church. They just loved Jesus. And um, <clears throat> I had to share the preaching with two of my students. But they, and they did better than I did. That's what I remember about that. But that afternoon, I was allowed to preach at a service of about 250 people who met in the old city hall auditorium where the communists used to gather all their people to indoctrinate them. And I'm saying, this place has been redeemed. 
Now, I'm giving you more information than you need to get to my point. <clears throat> I stayed the night before when I got to Corston in the home of a man who'd been 10 years in the Soviet gulag out in Siberia. His brother was a pastor, and he was in the gulag for 12 years, but this man had been there with his brother for 10 years just because they were Christians. It's an interesting little place. The children, adult children, had built this home for mom and dad. There was uh, no central heating, of course. The windows were all painted shut because in the winter, the wind would blow through, so the best way to, to insulate is just to paint the windows shut, so there's no real circulation in this house. When you went to the bathroom or toilet, you had to go outside, go through the goat pen to the outhouse. That wasn't such a great deal in the middle of darkness, I'll tell you. There was a big metal, I can't call it a cistern, that's the best thing I can call it, a water tank outside the house. And he'd fill that, and then there was a little line running to the house, and you went and pulled the lever, and the water came out of the cistern, and that was the only running water they had in the house. And we had for breakfast basically what we'd had the night before. We had warmed up leftovers because that's what's how you do it over there during those times. But here's the thing. I say all that. This man, having been through all these experiences of trial and persecution for the sake of Jesus, was by far the most joyous, happy man I've ever met in my life. Bar none. So I asked him, knowing what he'd been through, <clears throat> living the way he was now, what enables you to be so joyful after all of this? He just said two words to me, Holy Spirit. The evidence that the Spirit is present is love, joy, peace. He had held in front of himself the joy of the presence of God, and that's what brought him through. And that's how this verse works in our lives. All right, the second thing I want to pick up on is something called the action of ransom. It's a saying of Jesus that we read this past week. It's in the Gospel of Mark. <clears throat> Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We have come to share in Christ, the writer of Hebrews says. And James says, suppose a person is without food and clothing, and you say to him, well, I wish you well, brother. But you don't give him any help? Well, what good is that? Faith without action is useless. And this phrase, Jesus saying, I've come to be a ransom for you has bothered me for life. Now, you know what a ransom is, right? It's somebody snaps a person or a child and holds them for ransom. And the tension of waiting until you get the phone call or the letter as to what the ransom is, what, you, what they want, how much they want. 
It's a payback. And I'm saying, how in the world is Jesus a payback? Is Christ's death a ransom? To whom was it paid? Now, that's been an argument in church history for years. To who received the ransom? Who was it paid to? If Jesus' death is a payment for a ransom for sin, how does that work? Well, some in the early church argued that, <clears throat> well, it was paid to the devil. Well, I'll tell you something. The only thing that God owes the devil is eternal hell. He doesn't owe him the death of his son. Well, we could say, or I was thinking maybe it's the ransom was paid to the Father for the wrath of God is poured out upon many and the wages of sin are death. So what's going on? That if the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life, the great thing is that God himself, the wages of sin, the payment is death. Jesus died. That means that God himself paid our ransom. God himself did it for us. It's not works. It's not even faith. It is a God himself in Christ is meeting whatever requirements are made for you and I to get back into relationship with him. I understand ransom in the sense of what Jesus said, the run on of words. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. He said, I came to serve and to give my life a ransom. So what the ransom is, Christ's death for sin is how he serves us by making it possible for us to have a relationship with the Father again. That's the way it always works. It's overwhelming to me to think that God and Jesus gets out in front of our sin and works to bring us home. As we hold the joy in the Holy Spirit ahead of us as we meet trials, so God has put out in front of himself all that was necessary for you and I to be back in relationship with our Father and with Jesus. It is mystery that how God would die within himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in the mystery of that death and resurrection, you and I, by faith in Christ for doing that and standing in our place, come into relationship with God. Such a God. Such a God. We had a debt too large to pay. God paid it himself. Such a God. How does that work? Well, I think some of you have heard this story. But I was asking God, I literally was asking God about this whole thing, and we read about it in Hebrews about Jesus is our intercessor. Jesus is a ransom. I was asking God early on, how does this work? What's this look like? And some of you will remember the story. And this was God's answer. Sometimes God gets so practical, it hurts. This hurt. So what's happening? <clears throat> Our children are young. We have an infant in the house. 
and the flu is starting down the block at the first house. And because of children, many children playing together, the flu starts to move down the block, house to house to house to house. And I'm saying, Lord, it's going to come to our house. <laughs> and we have an infant child. And my wife is just re still recovering from childbirth. And if they get the flu, whammo. And what I heard was for me to say to God, God, give me the flu and spare my wife and child. Now, now it sounds kind of noble, right? <laughs> I mean to tell you, I got so sick. <laughs> now, the flu can come through, and I normally just, you know, a few aches, a few pains, I keep going. Other people in the family get wiped out. I was wiped out for four days, and they were not touched once. And God says when it was over, see, that's how it works. That's what I do for you when I say that my son died for you. That he took, as the prophet said, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has gone our own way, but God has laid on his son Jesus the iniquity of us all. God did it for us. All right, these things are not connected. Let me move along. I have at least one or two more. Let's have the next slide. I bring this because of a recent experience I had 12 times. I'm very, very into numerology this past week, reading all this stuff, so please forgive me. I've been counting beans, okay? 12 times plus in the three books that we read, there's a reference to people drifting away from the faith. It reads like this. <clears throat> we must be careful not to drift away. We must not ignore salvation. We mustn't harden our hearts, turn away, fall short, fall away, be slow to learn, or miss the grace of God. Jesus put it this way in a parable. Do not be blinded by Satan and fall away because of persecution or being drawn away by worry or by the deceitfulness of wealth. Something that's troubled me over the years is why is it that one generation has a revival and people come to faith, and then as you go for the next generation and the next generation, <clears throat> next generation, the faith gets weaker and weaker and weaker. We've, I've noticed this over the years. <clears throat> it used to be when I first went into ministry, we expected <clears throat> our students when they went to university perhaps to begin to fall away. As good as the preparation was, there was a tendency. Then it dropped to a lower level, and then high school students started to drift early on. And then it dropped to the junior high level. And I'm saying, God, why? Why? What's going on? This is not right. Because I read in the book of Hebrews, as you did this week, that there was the faith in Abraham. <clears throat> he passed on his faith to his son Isaac. And Isaac passed the faith on to his son Jacob. And Jacob passed the faith, faith on to his son Joseph, right? And I said, this has got to happen. This is the way it's supposed to work. <clears throat> so recently I was in the Northwest visiting our daughter <clears throat> and five of our 11 grandkids. 
I'm sitting in church with them, and the preacher is going on and on like I am this morning, <laughs> but from Hebrews 12, about we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So run the race with perseverance. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know what? After church, we're going to the cemetery. Well, it's Halloween tomorrow, so this is appropriate illustration, right? I didn't tell my grandkids. <clears throat> I just asked my daughter if we could all go out to the cemetery after church, and she said, all right, Dad. Because <laughs> she knew that I would often, when I go to the Northwest, I, I'm old school, and I know my parents are not there, but I do visit the cemetery out of honor and let my memory come and maybe a tear or something, you know. Loosen the old hardness of my mind and heart up. And so we went to the cemetery and I said, now it's, it's George Jefferson and Alice Jefferson. You'll see a nameplate side by side. <clears throat> so let's go look. I kind of knew the direct. And I said, well, I want to do the five trees. It's down this lane. So we went down there and they wandered around. Then all of a sudden, one of them found it. I said, okay, come around. And they're looking at me saying, what in the world, Poppy, are you doing here? I said, now look, you're standing by the graves of my father and mother. And we know they're not here, but this is where I said it all started. My dad was the first Christian in his family. And my mother was the first Christian in her family. And I said, their faith in Christ, they passed on to me and to your uncles. And I said, now your parents, my daughter, is passing the faith on to you. There's four generations standing here as a as the great cloud of witnesses starts with my parents and they're here with us in that cloud of witnesses and this is how it works. And I want you just to sense and realize that what you experienced in Jesus this, morning, this afternoon out here in the cemetery has been passed along. And this is how you need to pass it on when you have your own children. It was such a special moment. And it's, this, is the, this is the way it goes. And I said to them, look, it said, we're surrounded by a great <clears throat> cloud of witnesses in the stadium. We're running a 440 relay. And you got this baton in your hand. And you got to pass it on. Don't drop it. Well, I didn't say don't drop it, but I said don't drop it. Pass it on. Pass it on. Don't drift away from the faith. Now, the last point that I want to make <clears throat> is be an example of patience. I brought this as the last point just because over 20 times in our three books, there's some reference to be patient, endure, persevere. He who perseveres to the end will be saved. Imitate those through faith and patience receive what is promised. We've read that this week. Be patient as a farmer is between the time of planting and the time of harvest. Be an example of patience in the face of suffering. Blessed are those who persevere, like Job's perseverance. Those who stand firm will live in relationship with God. The key is a hard, heavy one. Because each of these three words, patience, perseverance, endurance, all have the same root. I have it on the screen. <clears throat> to remain under. 
not squirm out, not ask, oh God, deliver me out of this. I'm Daniel in the lion's den, Lord, here I am, you see me. <laughs> what are you going to do? But I'm not going anywhere because I can't get out. <laughs> so I have no choice but to persevere, to remain under. When we are people of joy and when we are people of faith, we remain under the circumstances that we are as we work and as we pray because God is maturing us in our trust and faith in him. That's what James says, right? That's how he grows us up in the most holy faith is by our remaining under, not trying to escape. How does that work? Well, when I went to university, <clears throat> my sophomore year, I was the business manager of the university newspaper. And I didn't know, but they appointed a new editor. And his God is my witness, and he knows I am sanctified and redeemed and holy and think good thoughts about other people. He is the, the worst guy on the earth to ever work for. <laughs> little short guy, pudgy. He ate peanut butter sandwiches. Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. You go in, into the office and there's the jelly and the peanut butter and the bread. That's how he lived. And he had this big tall friend about 6'6". Six, six. His name was Alf. And he would have fit very well in tonight in one of these Halloween places. And I'm being generous. <clears throat> and after I, a work of weeking, a week of working, with this guy. I went home for the weekend and I told my dad, I, I can't do this. I cannot do this. And my dad looked me in the eye and he said, Dick, if you stay with Palmer for a whole year, then you have learned a lesson that will serve you the rest of your life and you'll be able to work with anybody. I mean, that's how bad it was. And he said, if you will endure, you remain under this, you can work with anybody. And just a personal note to all of you caregivers present this morning. That's how it works, right? You just remain under. <clears throat> Don't feel sorry for me, but for the last 16 years, I've been a caregiver, basically. Do all the laundry, fold it, do all the grocery shopping, do all the cooking, preparations, serving, cleaning up afterwards, do all the yard work, write the bills, do it all. Two people in one body. And I'll tell you, there have been times that I have complained to God. But what I've found by remaining under this circumstance is that I now know when I'm moving with God, his spirit in me, and when I'm not. And that's a lesson I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. Because when I'm angry, and when I get cranky, and when I get short-tempered with the situation, I know I'm not in the spirit of God. So I go sit myself down in the corner and say, Jesus, I'll give it back to you.
all right? Because I want to be fully in your presence and your presence fully in me. Perseverance, remaining under. And if this goes on much longer, I might even finally grow up. That's what it's all about. So, in this rambling in four different sections without any particular connection, my challenge to you is, as you read the scripture, not just the remaining two weeks of the program, but out into the future, ask yourself as you read, God, how does this work, what I just read here? What does this look like in my life? Ask him. Ask him. Jesus said when we ask, being the good father that his father is, he will give us answers. And more than that, he'll give us the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is his presence. And it doesn't get any better than that.